Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You know, what makes you a good human and how do we stay, well, I guess my tagline is, how do we stay human in a digital age? What does that even mean? Um, what do you want to have in your life? Um, and to me, that's about really authentically connected. That's about being empathetic. That's be- about being conscious and being able to feel like you're making choices that are really well-informed. So in- increasingly my work isn't so much about the digital. It's actually about the humans who are interfacing with the digital. And if you could look up, great name for a podcast. Mm, um, thank you. <laughs> it would just, that would, that's what makes a difference and that's where those connections happen. Welcome back to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, I just want to start off by thanking you for following along on this journey with me, Uh, continuing to grow and improve the shows. I hope you notice and bringing on such incredible guests. I'm learning so much through this process and really just uh, am honored that all of you are listening. And so as always, feel free to reach out to mark at thelookuppodcast.com. If you have any questions, guest recommendations, or suggestions for me. So diving into this episode, I had the privilege of chatting with Jocelyn Brewer. Jocelyn is the creator of Digital Nutrition. She's been exploring the impacts of technology and hyper-connected lifestyles for a decade. She was one of the first uh, speaking about digital wellness uh, almost 10 years ago, and I'm just starting on this journey now. So it's, it was great to chat with her. She's a registered psychologist with the Psychology Board of Australia and part of Australia's first cyber psychology research group. In addition, she has over 13 years of experience in public education as both a teacher and a school counselor. On this episode, she and I discussed digital nutrition and how it is a more holistic approach to technology use than simply labeling technology as addictive. We discussed two different schools of psychology both cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, ACT. That was the first time that I learned about ACT. Since Jocelyn often interacts with kids in a school environment, we focused a lot of our attention on the impact technology is having on what she called screenagers, and even explored Jocelyn's approach to technology with her two-year-old daughter. Jocelyn brings a sharp intellect and a light-hearted approach to a serious topic and I really enjoyed chatting with her. As always, you can find more info on Jocelyn and her work in the show links. Without any further interruption from me, this is Jocelyn Brewer. So Jocelyn Brewer, thank you so much for coming on uh, the Look Up podcast and joining me here. I feel really lucky to have you. Um, one initiative I've been trying to do on this show is, you know, A, I think we need, you know, more women voices, obviously. And the podcast space is like, seems to be dominated by white males. Mm-hmm. And so Hi, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely want to add as much diversity as possible to this show and kind of um, buck that trend and hopefully continue to have more women on. 
Um, I was raised by many women, three. Um, and, and so it's super important. Not that, you know, obviously it shouldn't matter, but, um, but yeah, obviously your work speaks for yeah. itself regardless of gender. Sure. So, um, so yeah, so as I've kind of been, first of all, we were introduced by Nir Eyal, yeah. um, who's coming on the show. He spoke extremely highly of you and, oh. you know, he obviously hooked and now he's got this book indistractable and he said that you were one of the kind of early and leading voices in um this kind of digital health digital wellness movement and i know you describe it a bit differently you talk about digital nutrition yeah um definitely want to dive in there but for starters i kind of wanted to just um acknowledge that you know you've been publicly speaking about um, you know, the effect of technology on mental health for almost a decade um, mm-hmm. now. And I wanted to just ask, how how has your thinking evolved over the last yeah. few years as technology continues to rapidly evolve? That's a really good question, and it's changing all the time. Um, I guess definitely in the last 18 months to 12 years, I think it's it's shifted and the whole conversation worldwide has shifted a lot. But it, it started off with us talking about kids and technology, so the impacts of um, one-to-one computing in, in classrooms and then obviously the explosion of smartphones. Um, mm. But it's so, so it used to be, you know, me talking to parents and talking about all of those issues with relation to the kids. But much more now when I talk to parents, I'm actually speaking to their own habits and their own kind of sense of being quite overplugged um, with their devices and their work, you know, being not being able to, to disconnect in the way that we probably did 10 years ago. Um, so the whole narrative about, you know, even um, the role modelling that parents do ha- has shifted and the narrative that I've always kind of had was much more about we need to kind of ask questions about what we're doing online rather than have these blanket ideas of screen time and that's definitely sort of coming through a little bit more. But even when I when I think about the work that I started off doing about 10 years ago when I was training to be a psychologist um, and that's kind of how it all started was I was talking about internet addiction and I was kind of really okay with some of those terms and the languaging around that, which came um, kind of directly from Dr. Kimberly Young, who was the person who kind of first coined internet addiction and started talking about that in about 1995. And I actually met her and she was an incredible woman who actually sadly passed away in March this year. Um, so even the kind of way that we, we would talk about that and even the way that she talked about it, that one of the TED Talks she did, she actually talked about digital nutrition, um, having met me and, and sort of having some great conversations. So um, even people wow. like that have shifted the way that they use what I call the A word um, around our habituation to technology, our obsession, our requirement, our stuckness with it. So um, I, I do try and veer away that from that word and, you know, we can, we can talk about that later, I guess, if you want to, because just well, to, I'd love how- to dive into that. I'd love to dive into that now because, you know, obviously I've had, we talked about this, I've had Adam Alter on the show mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, he talks quite, he, he, you know, encourages using the A word, using the word addiction and describing these behavioral addictions. And then Nir, who I haven't released the episode yet, it will likely come out in a month, but he, he and I had a really interesting conversation. I was, it was not expected where he is adamant that this is not addiction, that we, 
make people victims when we use that word. So I'm curious yeah. what's your take on the A word and, and you know, what what yeah. is the proper um, taxonomy here? Yeah. So, look, it's it's a tricky question because one, um, and I, I've heard Nia speak about this, um, the podcast with Ezra Klein um, came out this week and I was listening to that and I've heard your episode with Adam. Um, and, look, they both have... It's really about how we're approaching it. So for me, I'm a psychologist and as a psychologist, if I pick up the DSM, the Diagnostic and um, Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, um, in that there is a section and it says we basically don't use addiction in this book because there's such a polemic nature, um, it's such a polemic term, it's laden with so much um, kind of... I can't remember exactly how they frame it, but basically they say it's laden with lots of difficulty and we veer away from that. We talk about disorder. And even with gaming disorder that's come out with um, the World Health Classification, uh, the World Health Organization's ICD-11, um, they're not using addiction there either. Um, so my take is that it's it's a salacious word that sells and it does kind of victimise people. Um, I think it's really tricky to then use the drug analogy too. And I don't think, um, you know, the general population is literate enough to understand the difference between behavioural addictions or process addictions and then substance um, use disorder. Um, so it sounds really like drug-o-y and druggy and, and junky kind of stuff. And I think that's really problematic. We know the narrative about the war on drugs and the way we polemicise people who, who do choose to use drugs in a really negative way. And when we're talking about devices that parents hand out to their kids and um, platforms that parents allow their kids to use, I get really creeped out by the idea that you're calling your kid an addict when if they're an addict, then you've bought them the drug. Um, it just doesn't sit very well with me in terms of kids and technology. What I do say, though, is that devices are more like a syringe. If we have to use this drug analogy and it's, again, really salacious and it's, you know, gets lots of clicks on headlines and things like that, is technology is much more like a syringe. And whether you use heroin or insulin or you vaccinate your child is the difference as to what kind of impact that particular thing is going to have. Um, yeah, and I will not ramble too much about that because they're long and complex kind of issues around drug use and addiction and how that shows up from a clinical perspective versus how we just use it in the kind of everyday parlance. And that's obviously crept into, you know, I'm so addicted to anything that is a bit of a guilty pleasure. I think we've got better words um, and we're clever enough as humans to describe our experiences a lot better than using that particular word. Yeah, and, and addiction makes <laughs> addiction makes it sound like we, we don't have agency over our own behaviours, whereas habituation or, you know, habit forming behavior yeah. allows us to kind of take control. Yeah. I guess. And, I and with some kids, you know, playing Fortnite, for instance, they're highly engaged. Many mm. kids, you know, aren't necessarily addicted. Do they have a tantrum when they are told to stop playing Fortnite? Yeah. Some of them, just like we would, you know, not necessarily like it if somebody came and took a plate of dessert away from us in the middle of eating it. So, you know, I think, mm. yeah, it just gets really tricky, especially when we're talking about, you know, young people. Um, there's there's a whole, you know, scope of different words. Yes, obsessed and maybe being obsessed with something isn't necessarily healthy. The bigger question is around the context, around um, what are you doing with the other 23 hours of your day or whatever it is. Mm. 
So it's a much more nuanced conversation than, you know, this tech bad. And, you know, and I guess that's, you know, that's why I'm continuing to speak to people like you is because I'm kind of discovering as I move down this process, the nuance of it all, Um, you know, there, and, and that's why, so you mentioned this, this analogy of a syringe um, and it's really about what you put inside of the syringe. So maybe the applications that you're using or the games that you're playing as a child, young person or as an adult. Um, I think you kind of coined the term digital nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, what you just said reminds me of it. So why don't, why don't you discuss that um, in a little more detail mm-hmm. and maybe we can identify the different types of um, tech as nutrition Uh, and kind of what the impact is on our mental health. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I really started talking about this as a response to the rise of people talking about digital detoxing, and that didn't Mm. sit kind of well with me or going on a digital diet, again, from the the context of young people but also just in general, that tech in itself isn't toxic. Um, And some people would say, yes, it is. It's designed pervasively to make you addicted and spend time and all of that. Um, I guess I, I was well. That's that's teacher. the challenge. Yeah, that's that for me is the challenge because it feels to me still as I have these conversations. You know, Near talks about like, te- and I'm sorry to interrupt, but like Neil okay. Near talks about like television, and you know, when the printing press came out, people were addicted, quote unquote, considered addicted to reading books and yeah. you know every new step in technology. But it just feels it feels like this is slightly different only because of the way that our information is used in a constant feedback loop to make sure that we're continue that to make sure that we're taking certain behaviors, whether it be voting for a certain candidate as I think this new documentary on Netflix showed with the great hack Mm -hmm. or buying that new digital item. And so it feels a little bit more, I guess, so use the word salacious, it feels a little more dangerous than mm. other media. And I, I think it's more immersive too. So it's it's colonized our life in a way that maybe books haven't or, you know, technology didn't. If you just look at the rate of adoption of things like TV, it took, um, I'm going to get this figure wrong, but decades, let's say 40 mm. years, for 50 million people to get TV. How long did it take Fortnite to get to 50 million people? Actually, Google mm. couldn't tell me this, so I tweeted Tim Sweeney and he told me it took six months. Um, no I was really devastated way. because I was really hoping Fortnite took 14 days. Um, it took six months. <laughs> um, That's for, for 50, some, million players. 50 million um, players, whereas something like Pokemon wow. Go took 19 days. So the rapidity of our um, adoption of technology is really, really quick. And ultimately our brain is an ancient brain. We don't, we've we've got a really old operating system in there. So the amount of information that we're consuming and definitely what we know about cognitive load is that we're just maxing out on information pretty much before we've even gotten out of bed (laughs) compared to the kind of information that people would have been consuming, you know, 200 years ago. Um, yeah, and, and it's, obviously, it's, yeah. Someone used the analogy of going on your phone first thing in the morning and checking your messages as 
would you allow a hundred people to walk into your bedroom first thing in the morning? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why are you letting a hundred people into your mind first yeah. thing in the morning? And I really like the saying that um, getting information off the internet is like taking a drink from a fire hydrant that, you know, just trying to find what you want and having quality of what you want, you just get smashed in the face. So, um, yeah, the uh, so I guess back to the whole digital nutrition question. Yeah, is tech toxic? Um, I'll kind of put that on the shelf over there. And yeah, absolutely. I, I was just kind of feeling like, would it? What does a detox do? Like, you basically tell everyone that you're not going to be on social media for the weekend because you're doing some sort of virtuous thing, and then you come back and you kind of just binge on everything that you've missed out on. So it's kind of like doing a juice cleanse when you're like angry for three days and then you come back and you eat a hamburger and you're like, yeah. Um, it, this kind of binge and purge thing didn't sound to me like it was going to work from everything I knew about kind of behaviour change. And I got to thinking about what if we created healthy habits, not restrictions, where we had better guidelines and principles for what is using technology in a way that maintains your control and your efficacy but amplifies the best bits, what would that be like? Um, and increasingly, I guess the answer to that question is working out uh, where technology supplements uh, your life in positive ways. So how does it help with um, you know, making life more productive or connecting face-to-face -face work um, and what are the parts of your life that it's creeping into in ways that, it, that are creepy. Um, so it, it used to be much more just about habits and now it's like about everything. So it's about the ethics of tech design. It's about, you know, whether or not things are addictive and how they're designed and what do we do with this World Health um, Organization diagnosis and, where does e-safety fit into all of that? Um, it's it's kind of become synonymous with digital hygiene, digital citizenship, um, or digital literacy. All of those kinds of things are actually, I guess, part of my brand and digital nutrition. Yeah. Mm. And I guess just like what are kind of the categories of nutrition you know like what yeah. what, what are compounds, the virtual vitamins <laughs> yeah what are the vir i love that what are the virtual, the virtual vitamins, vitamins you know that you're getting and kind of like how do you categorize them and is there almost like a unique diet for each individual yeah um or is there kind of like a broad base like the food pyramid mm. which people used to think was the appropriate yeah. you know yeah, uh, I Look, guess die for everyone. Yeah, um, not I haven't. Keto, I haven't gotten too. Yeah, I haven't gotten too specific with that. And there's a few, you know, people out there who kind of try and say you should only have a few serves of social media a day. No one can tell me what a serving size is. Um, a lot of it does come back down to time that you spend online, because obviously time is a really easy um, metric to measure, and it's limited. So we all only have 24 hours in a day. If you are spending, and as you know, humanity is spending more and more time on their phone year in year out, something has to be shrinking. And even though some people might say, "Well, I I do all of my, um, you know, scrolling." Uh, on public transport or I think a lot of people do a lot of scrolling in the bathroom. That's just probably the evolution of reading on the toilet, right? Um, I've spoken about that a few times actually. Multitasking, right? <laughs> I, I, mean, I, always, I always do a thing in my student presentation. Are you using the bathroom or are you on your phone? <laughs> <laughs> is this a good use of time or a bad use of time? Is this a good way of multitasking or do we really need to monotask? Um, so... Um, 
Yeah, like in terms of virtual vitamins, I talk about the idea that play is one of the macronutrients, kind of like protein. So the building block to one of the things that you might be doing online that's really great is playing and being playful and engaging in play-based learning. So that kind of encapsulates a lot of the kinds of games um, that sometimes we can play. And obviously there are some people who have a lot of play in their digital diet and maybe not enough green veggies <laughs> because they're, yeah. they're gaming, you know, as a, as a central part. And gaming, again, I would say, you know, even within proteins, there's legumes, there's, you know, animal um, protein. There's lots of different ways to get um, protein in your diet. It doesn't have to be a, a you know, R-rated um, big-name title. And, in fact, um, I did a little TEDx talk where I would propose that a digital superfood would actually be an alternative or indie game, a pro-social kind of game um, that somewhere like Games for Change, which have about 170 or so different games on their website, those kind of games um, are maybe the superfoods or the types of protein that we could be engaging young people um, in more rather than just the multi-billion dollar games that, you know, are super popular but maybe not that nutritious. Depends how you play, right? I think there's lots of things that are great about something like Fortnite in that you can have a 20-minute battle and then it's not an immersive world or persistent world. It's definitely immersive. It's not a persistent world where the game is continuing even if you're not there and that kind of creates, you know, FOMO around things like that. So Minecraft, for instance, can be persistent. Mm. Um, Or World of Warcraft. Yeah, absolutely, those kinds of games. So. You know, like lots of people um, are very have lots of problems with Fortnite. Um, I think that we can hack a lot of these games to um, play play them well, so um, and and play in nutritious ways. I I was want to like I was a geography teacher and a commerce teacher, but um I I wanted to take people on Grand Theft Auto, like get kids to to play Grand Theft Auto, where you didn't have to like actually do any of the nasty stuff but just like hail a cab, take a ride to Manhattan Beach <laughs> and hang out because it's a really great salad bar at Manhattan Beach. I went to Coachella in like 2008 and I hung out <laughs> with some friends there and I just remember these amazing salads at Manhattan Beach. So I'm like, we could do a geography excursion of going to LA without even having to go to LA just by playing Grand Theft Auto but not playing by the rules of how you get lots of points in that game. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of ways you can mess with games. Got it. And, and outside of gaming, kind of what other, you know, what other online activities are nutritious or, or necessarily bad mm-hmm. for your health? Or is it even that they're not? It's just a matter of the, do- the dosage, as, as we kind of said, yeah. or, the, or the size. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's it's about breaking down what the activities are, but also breaking down what the cognitions are, right? So two different people can eat a hamburger. One person can hate themselves and feel really guilty. The other person can completely own it. Similarly, you can get two people to, you know, scroll through Instagram or a particular hashtag. Some will have particular kind of digital literacy or self-esteem or different cognitive and emotional skills to be able to read that. Um, stream and kind of go yeah that's pretty but I know it's not real life or I'm not going to buy into a narrative of you know compare and despair whereas other Mm. people might be more predisposed and more vulnerable to some of those messages so 
it's it's definitely the bigger context of the skills that you bring um, and maybe the, the allergies or the sensitivities that you might have to particular messages or particular types of media, um, digital mm-hmm. media. Um, you know, I ask questions about are, are virtual vitamins things like um, vitamin E for empathy? Are the kinds of activities that you're engaging with helping you build empathy, build perspective and understand other human beings' um, experiences or is it actually reinforcing your kind of echo chamber and taking you further away from a variety of perspectives? So um, that's definitely something that we talk about with young people like, oh, they're not, they're all really narcissistic and they're not having empathy for other people. Well, maybe there are ways that we can actually insert some of that empathy into um, the, the kinds of messages that are out there. Yeah. And that's something that I think about as we kind of, as tech continues to merge with the human, um, there's a gentleman named Brian Johnson in, in Los Angeles, who's creating a company called kernel, which is mm-hmm. a, um, human brain computer interface, similar to wow. Elon Musk's Neuralink. Mm-hmm. And I think he's actually focused on empathy. Um, enhancing empathy. I don't know. They haven't released a commercially viable product. They haven't done too much public speaking on the matter. But, you know, it's interesting to think about what values, um, what traits we could insert into technology as man and machine merge Mm. that will help us progress as a species um, or as a society rather than kind of digress or not digress or kind of devolve into yeah. this kind of angry mob of, of separateness. So empathy is a really interesting one. Um, you know, so you're, you're a psychologist and you work with, you work with teenagers or screenagers and, and others. And, um, you know, just as mental health, you know, I actually, I, I worked with a, um, a cognitive behavioral therapist uh, when I was in high school, he was the mm-hmm. school therapist. His name was Dr. Yeah. Sefik. Shout out to Sefik. I was one of those uh, overachievers that was applying to, you know, the Ivy League schools and kind of freaking out. And he ran these groups for those, mm-hmm. you know, kids like that that were slipping through the cracks because there had been a suicide um, at my school previously. Wow. You know, as you know, that's prevalent in like in the Valley now mm. um, amongst teenagers. Yeah, and, Australia. Uh, Australia has a mental health crisis around youth suicide and the highest rates mm. in the world, and it's gone back up, unfortunately. So we are definitely in think, a big space around that. What do you think about that? I mean, what would you attribute technology and the emergence of kind of social to you're, – you're shaking your head no now as no. a contributor, so you don't believe no. that that's contributing. What do you think is, 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 at, is, is at the heart of this oh. crisis? Oh, it's look, it's such a massive question. Um, what yeah. we know is that the that there's no causal link and the ability, I guess, for for us to track what leads to uh, completed suicide is very, very difficult. Um, so what what is, I, I guess maybe an easier answer to uh, a question to answer and to not sidestep that is, how do we, what, what is creating the mental health crisis in young people and how do we arrest that? Because um, many of the kids who are reporting, uh, you know, depression and anxiety and all of those kinds of issues, um, that there's lots that we can do from an early intervention perspective and from continuing the conversation that we've started around building um, 
mental health literacy. So, so one of the reasons, I guess, is we talk about it more. We, you know, I saw a meme the other day where it was like, boomers are like, oh, it's therapy. Like, really <laughs> don't talk about it. And millennials and young people are like, let me tell you what my therapist told me today. Like, it's very yeah. open, that I whole mean, conversation. <laughs> right? So, um, which is fantastic. There's still, still, there's still some schools where me as the school counsellor rocks in and it's like, oh, no one wants to be seen to be going there because you must be crazy. So there's still a lot of work to do around that. But I think partly because we're having the conversations um, we're more aware of it. We're asking more questions. We're doing, um, we, we can kind of almost self-diagnose or parents kind of pick up on what their kids need much more. Um, I, I think, again, to use a meme sort of analogy is there's that great meme that says, you know, adults, young people are more depressed than ever. We must find out why. And the kids say, well, there's a climate crisis. There are all these problems in the world. There's a, you know, basically a megalomaniac running one of the biggest Western democracies. You know, there's a lot of shit going down here. And adults are like, yeah, it's the iPhones, isn't it? Um, And there is a book basically that is all about how all of these statistics that, you know, young people aren't drinking, smoking, having sex, they're not going to parties, all the things that we spent pretty much the 80s and 90s trying to get kids not to do, right? And it then they're like not doing it theory. and now we're freaking out because they're choosing to be on their phones instead. Um, and even when you look at, for instance, Sydney has gone through this massive um, development of pretty much all through, well, there's a train line that kind of runs, uh, crisscrosses um, through Sydney and all the way along those train lines are just these massive high-rise developments going up where people are living in boxes and there's not enough green space and community space and things like that, in my opinion. Um, being uh, developed alongside that. So, of course, people are on their phones more, right? We're creating cities that are designed to be disconnected and create loneliness. So why are we blaming this technology? Why are we blaming kids for using the very thing that we gave them um, because we thought we were (laughs) parenting well and we have to keep up with the iPhones, as I say, um, to to try and... um, you know, make it. Uh, Then there's all the technology and learning too. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, um, you know, a lot of what kids are using their their devices for is supposed to be educational, um, but obviously it's all in one space. So it's not just the iPhones or the the smartphones. It's not just the laptops. It's really the internet connectivity and then what you access by, you know, being able to get online through that syringe device, whatever you want to call it. So, so, so essentially what I hear is, what I hear you saying is there's a crisis, there's a mental health crisis in Australia right now amongst teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, the rate of suicide is going up. The rate of depression is going up. This is not just a statistical anomaly because we're measuring these things more. This is real. Mm-hmm. This is happening. Absolutely. And it's, it, from your perspective, it's more about the world at large that we're living in, the kind of broader societal trends, this kind of um, existential threat that's around of, of the world ending and things like that, rather than rather than a complete dis. It's almost like the the, the use of technology and being disconnected is is an effect rather than a cause. Absolutely, it, it, yeah. It's, it's a simpler side effect. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think it's a really complex sociocultural kind of phenomenon that the world is changing. And yes, phones and technology is a part of that and part of the distraction um, and part of the way, um, you know, I was I was writing a piece for Medium in, in relation to Nia's new book. And I'm really fascinated with building traction to goals and building traction and grip and stickiness with things that really matter. And I don't think as kind of you know, I don't want to say as a society, that's a bit general. I don't think the conversation around your future and designing something that matters and feels purposeful is enough a part of what we do, for instance, in schools. I don't mm. think, you know, even as an adult, I remember like I don't, I don't really remember anyone ever helping me work out what I wanted to do. Um, there wasn't a lot of guidance around that. There were people who knew and went for it and then there was me who kind of, fluffed around until their mid-20s and now like I'm 41 and I've kind of gone, oh, now I kind of understand all of those steps on my path. And they did kind of come together and make this really cool thing. But at the time I was just like, I have no idea and I had no strategy around how to build that traction. I think it would be, and, and now we're in a much different place, I guess, around the future um, and the questions that we ask about that. And I think doing more work around building purpose and using positive psychology to kind of build that would help with, you know, some of those issues that are coming up. Um, And I I also want to be clear, I'm not saying that there's not problems with young people using technology um, Mm. and some of the issues there, but the way that they're actually sort of represented in the media and certainly um, some big data sets and how they're spun and how they're selectively mm. sort of cherry-picked to amplify an association between, let's say, social media and depression are not helpful and I guess bamboozling the general public because they don't ask the kind of right questions about the statistics because only the nerdy people like me do. Um, so. Well, it's interesting because, because you know, when I think when you started your work in this space, it was not spoken about. It was not prevalent in the media, um, in the mainstream media. And now it's interesting to, to, to speak with people like you and Nir, who were there at the beginning of this kind of, or the earlier days of this kind of like, not anti-tech, but, you know, conscious tech or digital mm-hmm. wellness movement. Yeah. And here you say, okay, maybe the pendulum's now swinging in the wrong direction. It's swung too far in the opposite direction. And the mainstream media is just shouting from the mountaintops, tech is bad, tech is bad, tech is bad. It's Facebook's fault. When really it's it's almost like now scapegoating um, yeah. and ignoring really the broader issues that underlie some of this. Because this dull, you know, I would describe it as almost like a dull vibration of almost um, helplessness, hopelessness, and depression that I think is permeating young people, including millennials, right? Like who are a bit older, I'm 31. I feel it amongst my peers. It's, it's almost, it's, it's this indescribable, it's not sharp, but it's there, you know, blaming tech. I think there's all this undermining of our capacity as humans. I think that we sort of do play into the, well, I'm just kind of in the grind or I'm, yeah, it's it's really hard to kind of effectively sum up, especially because I think sometimes the communities and the populations I'm talking about are relatively um, rich, white and privileged, you know, to some, mm-hmm. to some level. I guess I don't work with, 
um, directly in, in therapy at least. I, I used to work at a school um, where uh, it was opposite a, a detention centre. So Australia does this really disgusting thing where we put a lot of people into immigration detention centres and even at the time women and children into detention centres. And so the, the schools that I worked at were, wow. were quite different but the kinds of things that we worked on and the kind of therapy that I would get to do was very, very different to what I do in um, my kind of inner west, which is, I don't know what the equivalent would be, um, kind of Prisons. middle class. It's, um, well, it, the inner west for us is kind of pretty green and lefty kind of um, area. Okay. It's like a, a pretty kind of hip part of town. So the kind of populations that I work with um I was thinking of the immigration centers you described sound to me. Oh, no, that's that's kind of the opposite end of town. Yeah, absolutely. They're completely like prisons. Yeah, completely like prisons. I'm actually planning on doing a few episodes on prison reform, um, specifically in the United States, because I think that is just like such a major We could talk for a long time about prisons. Um, I have had cause to, unfortunately, um, need to visit a friend who is in prison at the moment. Um, and it's just such a weird thing that we do to humans. Um, and I'd never in my life until recently had to kind of come face to face with what that actually looked like, even from the perspective of somebody who's a vegetarian and has been for 40 years needing to access nutrition was very, very difficult and, and what kind of passes off as food in that space is unbelievable and that the, yeah, anyway. Yeah, um, we we created, it. I mean, we still we still have a subclass, we still have a class of subhumans in America. They're called criminals and they don't have rights and they're not, I mean, they don't have the rights of the average citizen. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes Amazing. it's... Oftentimes it's because they made a mistake when they were young or there was some kind of mandatory minimum or three strike rule or they had oh, crack yes. instead of cocaine because they were, you know, and so there's so many, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's brutal, but I, I hear you. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you think of, when we think about problems like that and when we think about, you know, like I was just in Dakar and Senegal and, you know, I look at Africa and the true poverty there. Mm-hmm. I think there's often this, um, there can often be a reaction, especially from lib- more liberals and progressives, to throw to throw up their arms and say, "Well, this this digital health thing is is not really a problem. Like, mm. what are you talking about? This is like not yeah. it, this yeah. is not something worth discussing." But I think I think it is a subset of a broader mental health or or you know um, communal consciousness or, or universal psychology or. Yeah or collective unconscious, what Jung would call it, mm. that yeah. needs to be addressed because I think as we kind of pick away at this at this scab, at these layers, we'll discover more, you know? Absolutely. Uh, but I hear yeah. what you're saying. You're saying I'm working on this digital health stuff with, like, privileged white people. And... <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, you know, like, especially people who come to therapy with me because they're having problems with it the people that I want to reach and the people that I attempt to reach with parenting seminars and the student presentations that I do are with, um, you know, basically every class and cast of people in the, you know, even the most, and, and one of, even, even the low socioeconomic groups in Sydney, for instance, kids will have a phone, kids will have a smartphone. It might be a hand-me-down and they might not have any data, 
but that will be, they will have a smartphone. Um, lots of people prioritise having a smartphone over paying their electricity bills because it's so central to how we operate. And I definitely think that whole idea of unplugging is a complete luxury that some people kind of can have because if you're working in the gig economy, um, then you need to be able to answer your phone. You need to be able to um, kind of be responsive mm. to things like that. Um, we, just to the north of us, is Indonesia. Now, they have some of the highest rates of mobile phone use in the world. Um, and, you know, they're a developing nature. People. Yeah, huge, right? Australia's not even, I think we've just hit 25 million. So That's when crazy. you think about um, the number of people on our doorstep who are constantly using phones, this isn't necessarily, you know, a white person's problem. It's just something that maybe... Um, you know, the focus is on how um, we kind of shift that and definitely the unplugging and the detoxing thing I think is, you know, definitely luxurious. Um, but these are skills that everybody needs. These are skills especially mums need, I think, because it's, um, you know, the, the issues with uh, little ones, you know, from six, seven, eight months old, kids starting to swipe, kids being kind of, you know, having that... Um, information overload and the sensory overload through phones super, super early. Um, I think we need to get and, in and talk and about you preschoolers. Have a two, you have a two-year-old. Yeah, two I do. So, well, yeah. And what am I digital? Daughter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what uh, do you, I mean, how do you handle it as a parent? Obviously, it? you know, mm-hmm. we know, you know, Steve uh, Jobs didn't let his children near an iPad. Yeah. As, as, no, because he had become... 17 nannies who could do the <laughs> iPad work for him, right? So don't yeah, even get well, me started exactly. on how, you know, people who create technology don't let their kids on it. They have different lives to most of us. Um, yeah. So what do I do with my little one? Um, I was going to be so good at this, um, but uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the things is, on-demand TV, right? Um, if you remember, I don't know, when I was growing up, I there was... Netflix. A, Netflix. It was one of his first ones. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so when I was growing up, you could pretty much just watch um, Play School and Sesame Street in the morning and then in the afternoon, and that were the only kids' shows that were on. So you watch TV then, you ran around and you played, and then you watch TV in the afternoon. The issue with the on-demand stuff is... These kids become demanding. As soon as they know you can put Dora the Explorer on whenever, um, mm. it becomes this like, I want Dora. No, uh, I want Strawberry Shortcake, which was this afternoon. <laughs> now, our internet was down. You try and explain to a two-year-old that the, the special, you know, things that fly through the Magic air, the invisible box. things through that fly through the air that makes Strawberry Shortcake talk from mummy's phone to the TV is broken. She's like, well, just put it on. And I'm like, no, you can only watch TV today. She's like, well, I don't want flugels. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. This is what it is. And then um, we went and did some painting and I was cooking dinner and then everything was really quiet. And then I went out and looked at her and she had painted her entire face. <laughs> so, oh, God, that's amazing. She was like, I'm a tiger. Um, oh, so that's. That's what happens. You either have to get really messy um, and, you know, hang out and do all those things or, you know, the other stuff. So generally she doesn't touch my phone. She doesn't get to access my phone. Sometimes we make videos for our friends overseas and she really loves watching videos of other kids and videos of herself. Um, But she will tell me, mummy, put your phone down if I am videoing her or doing anything and, and I'm interrupting 
our interactions. So she actually oh, really so tells me what's going on. Um, we don't really share her publicly. So she has a private Instagram account just for friends and family, but generally she's not like, I don't spam people with my kids. Um, I think there's a lot of issues with sharenting and the way that people just represent them, their, their kids in ways that maybe is not going to go down so well when, you know, they're going for jobs and things like that later down the track. Um, and I think we need to really consider, um, how we share. I think, I think we are reconsidering how we share. I think definitely since Cambridge Analytica and all of that stuff happened, we have taken a step back. What happened? What was that? With Cambridge Analytica and the whole Facebook Oh, yes. I thought reach. you said Kendall. I thought you said Kendall Jenner. It was an, it was an accent oh. thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, of Analytica. course. But I mean, yeah. if, even if you have a private account on Instagram, right? Like they now have all of those photo, photos of your daughter. Yeah. So they, they still have them. I guess I feel like I have some control over them um, and who yeah. views them. Um, and yeah, I even love the that idea was. Of Sharon thing. I haven't heard that before. Oh, Sharon. But I, is... I had so many of my of people in my community, like they have accounts for their kids. You know, it's all about we're going to share as much as possible, as loud as possible. And yeah, you know, and then when the, you're trying to make the kid into an influencer and the kid wearing the clothes and all of that, because maybe mommy failed to be an influencer herself. I don't know. I mean, there's whole different ways of spinning that stuff. You might have heard of. Um, I think a woman who wrote from the New York Times or one of those kind of big titles who the kid Googled herself or the kid Googled mum and found all the stories that mum had written about her child and about their experiences and about whatever. And the kid, the kid was 13 and said, mum, get that down. Like, you didn't ask me to do that. And mum was like, no, this is part of my story. And the kid was like, no, no, it's my story. And there was a really big thing about that, which was I think very um, kind of yeah, sort of started a really bigger conversation around how we represent our children online and what their rights are to have a say over what's posted. When you're when you're hanging out, well, not hanging out, but working with kids, mm-hmm. um, you know, and these, and what are the youngest? What is the youngest age that you work with? Um, in a clinical setting, I just work with adolescents, and most of the presentations I do are in high school. But I speak to parents of like primary school um, okay. about tech habits and sort of how to set guidelines. I'm just curious, like, like, is there, you know, everything that's cool for the parents is uncool for the kids. Mm. So is, are you finding that there is a growing backlash amongst these adolescents about sharing or are they just, or is it so ingrained in them that you're sharing that, you know, sharing is a part of what we do that it's, it's normal and they're just sharing on different platforms because Facebook's not cool, but TikTok yeah. is cool. Totally. You know it. Um, yeah, look, I think it depends on the, the relationship you have with your kid and the way that you've kind of role modeled sharing or not sharing or privacy. Um, uh, so I think, that, I think there's particular um, kind of family-based values around that. Uh, so, you know, sometimes kids rebel against their parents. Sometimes they do exactly what mum did because that's all they've ever seen or dad did because that's all they've ever seen. Um, generally, though, there is a bit of a, I mean, the nature of adolescence is to push back and do the opposite almost. Um, it really depends on the, the connection that you have with your parent. You know, there's always those parents who are like besties with their kids and really are very, very close. <laughs> yes. um, I'm the cool mom. Yeah, and, and sometimes <laughs> that, that works and sometimes that ends in <laughs> massive tears. Um, I, I think generally kids are much more likely to try um, 
new platforms and different ways of messaging or communicating. Whereas, you know, pretty much once you turn about 35 or 40, I think Douglas Adams says it's 35. Any, any new technology invented after you're 35 will always feel like it's completely foreign and you have no handle on. And for me, that was kind of like Snapchat. I'm still like, snap what? I don't, streaks, huh? I mean, I yeah. get it, but I just don't, it's not something I engage with. Um, TikTok is like hilarious, but most of what kids are actually, like a lot of kids are seeing TikTok because the TikToks are being played through then Instagram. So they're being captured and then played through Insta. Um, and we know that kids are, you know, between Snap and Insta are still really, um, they're their central platform. So uh, I think it's just shifts in their digital practices. So we also know that lots of kids have Finsters. So fake Instagram accounts um, where because... Yes, I heard about this. What right. is this phenomenon again? So, well, basically because, you know, the tides turn and mum is on um, Pinterest. Pinterest is massive again too. Oh, my God. It's really interesting. No way, Pinterest, really? what? Is it 2011? I thought that was done. Yeah. Pinterest is totally like very big again, Um, especially for marketing. What are they using it for? Like marketing and memes and like all the inspo stuff. Um, Lots of brands are like, because I get lots of ads on Instagram for people who teach you how to like market through Pinterest and things. My algorithm is obviously really sick at the moment. (laughs) It's me some weird things. Um, yeah. <laughs> but basically because a lot of parents are now on um, Instagram, like my dad, pet algorithm and <laughs> we all, it'd be great. It'd be great if you could just like chat with your algorithm, yeah. you know, how's it going? Just like I, put a, I made a meme myself <laughs> on saying, do not feed the algorithms. Just either don't click anything or click absolutely everything. So it confuses the hell out of you. Um, and I even saw some, something that somebody was suggesting each day, it was like a digital wellness bloody thing, and they were like, each day do five fake Google searches, like like search something that you wouldn't really search in order to confuse Google. I'm like, that's really time-consuming, and I don't think I have the mental energy to think about five things that I don't want to know about. That was their, yeah. like, thing. <laughs> Are you well, serious? It's, it's interesting, I mean, because we haven't really touched on what's happening behind the scenes, right, and how how those algorithms are kind of evolving to, mm. through our personal information to create a unique experience for each mm. of us and what the implications of that are. I think we, I think we really don't understand. I mean, this, the great hack just came out um, and, you know, I, I think that brought some awareness, but it was, you know, sensationalized and I, obviously Cambridge Analytica, as you mentioned earlier, is, I quite was I persuadable? I, I don't know. You know, like mm. their demographic of of easily pers- easily mm. convinced individuals in swing districts. Mm. I don't know. It's uh, th- this problem goes so wide. It, not problem, but this this uh, this goes so wide and so deep. There's so much to talk about here. It's uh, yeah. it's, it's wild. Yeah, it's, absolutely. And as I say, my work has kind of kept expanding in terms of it's hard to talk about healthy habits unless you're thinking about the bigger picture and perspective about why we need to have those habits anyway and how so much of it, I guess, is just the media and the marketing machine and and capitalism, I guess, Um, that even the way that the media cycles work and the content and virality works and the, 
you know, we blame a lot of young people and, and women, I guess, for being obsessed with vanity metrics and we're hiding likes from people so that they're not obsessed with these vanity metrics. But how does media work? Media works because you get traction, you get shares, likes, retweets. Yeah. They're not really interested in the sentiment. They're not really interested if people are saying this is rubbish journalism or this is fake news or, um, you know, promoting misinformation or disinformation. They're like, sweet, we can charge more for advertising to you and we're getting more and more information pumping through in order to make our algorithm more and more accurate. Um, and definitely, like, there's, again, those memes that are like, you know when you get, you get an ad about something or for something that you've only even thought about? Like, you haven't even spoken nah. aloud. It's not even like Siri heard you talk about it and then served you the ad. It's like, you didn't tell anyone. um and that's happened to me a couple of times right and I'm like am I that obvious like am I that much of a cliche um I I mean we all we all must be you know and increasingly so the more information that we we feed the machine yeah I think I think and I'm hopeful that you know I work in the blockchain space and one of the reasons I do Mm -hmm. is because is because I believe that web3 which is you know, a um, an internet in which users own and control the rights to their own personal information mm-hmm. and need to um, permission how that information is used mm-hmm. and understand tra- in a transparent way, you know, what algorithms are being fed, et cetera. I believe that Web3 will flip the advertising model of media on its head. It's mm-hmm. broken in so many ways fundamentally um, you know, advertise, Facebook and Google capture the vast majority of the value that um, the advertising creates anyways. And so I th- and now that there's such a concern about privacy, I really do believe that that we're in our lifetimes, we're going to see a shift um, away from an advertising driven attention economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that will ultimately be what what tips what I hope tips the scale towards more healthy habits around mm-hmm. technology use. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to understand how it all works in order to hack a healthy habit, I guess. Um, And Mm. so, you know, the curtain is up in terms of people asking those questions now. And you don't have to be a tech guru to understand a little bit about how algorithms work or a little bit about what privacy and data um, is and why it's so valuable. Um, and, and they're things that, you know, kids, when I talk to them and I say, you know, you, th- you think that social media is free, you are paying literally with your attention and you need to value your, your attention. And that is like a really big lesson for a lot of young people. And I think even their parents, when I talk to them that evening too, yeah. that, you know, this is, this is an economy that we're in and your ability to concentrate is definitely one of those key skills of 21st century learners that we rabbit on about, um, there's four, I think, creativity, collaboration, communication and something else. And then I'm adding concentration. If you can concentrate mm, and you I can like focus, um, then you'll get places. And and that's what I basically teach kids to do um, and I try and do myself. <laughs> but it's that constant, Completely. you know. And it's extremely I, I, challenging, right? You have deep work, totally. I think, on your, on your bookshelf. And, Over there. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's just it's the constant barrage of, of attention capturing content that is again, curated just for us. And I've Mm. spoken about it on the show so many times, so I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse, I guess. 
going back to, um, you know, your work, your work as a psychologist, right? You mm-hmm. are trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you're also trained in acceptance and commitment therapy, which I had mm-hmm. never heard of ACT. Ah, you'll love it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm going to do some more, some more research so on that. But ACT. Just a heads up, it's ACT, not ACT. ACT, um, okay, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and it's like the third wave. So um, it's sort of off the back of CBT. So I, I did do my training or a little bit of training four years ago at the Beck Institute in Philadelphia with Aaron Beck himself and his daughter um, Judith. Um, but ACT is um, like contextual behaviour therapy. So we look with that a lot about being able to sit with negative feelings and it not all be um, about happiness. And, and kind of one of the godfathers of um, ACT is a guy called Russ Harris and he's got a book called mm. The Happiness Trap, which I could grab from up the shelf there as well. Um, there's a lot of mindfulness in that and being able to sit with um, and be really present to um, your uh, emotional state. And we talk a lot with that too about fusion to a particular narrative and, and being fused to, um, you know, a particular headspace. Um, it's also about values and being aligned to your values and, and that too is, fits in with um, some of the work um, or some of Nia's ideas with um, building traction, you know, action being at the centre and you can either distract or being in traction to those goals. So um, when you're more aligned to your values and you know what your value and purpose is, so a lot of kind of posic kind of um, thinking there, then it's a lot easier to know what to do next and to know how to act and behave. So, yeah, it acceptance and commitment therapy yeah, always like sounds it. like it sounds a bit like marriage counselling or something, acceptance and commitment. Yeah. It's like, are we are we doing marriage therapy here? What are we doing? But it's it's not that. It makes sense now that you broke it down. I mean, the acceptance part is super interesting to me because I think, you know, as a yogi, self-proclaimed, I guess I'm more of a yoga practitioner. You know, I, I think many of us start down this yoga path of like light and love and, and joy and happiness and wanting to, you know, perceiving kind of the way that a yogi should act in a very specific, narrow way. There's a, a whole set of shoulds, and Ram Das calls it the phony, the phony holy. Mm-hmm. And I think as you move, as I've moved deeper down this practice, it's really, as you said, that acceptance that when I'm meditating or you know feeling certain emotions that I, I've been using subjective labels for, like sadness, bad, anger, bad, etc. And trying to, in a way, suppress them or remove them and replace them with this light and love stuff, that also is not in true in kind of operating in truth. And it's important to to really sit with these emotions as as more data, as more data points in our lives to say, okay, yes, I'm feeling anger. Okay, what's it feel like? Oh, my blood's hot. My face is flush. Yeah. My jaw is clenched. My stomach is churning. Okay, yeah. what's it telling me about this experience? Exactly. You know. And how can I learn from that rather than just like shoving it down deep, which I think a lot of, especially kind of like millennial men when it comes to anger, especially these days um, tend to tend to do. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, I I think we're, we're probably coming close to our time, but I wanted to ask you like, you know, um, should everyone have a digital wellness coach? You know, like I think, I think that you, you can everyone, be your own I, digital wellness coach. You don't, I think, 
the, the, the idea that we need an external person coaching us all the time through stuff when we live in such a rich information age is sometimes mm-hmm. a bit of the problem. Like I think some of, um, you know, where we get trapped is thinking that somebody else has an answer and we don't honour our own wisdom because we haven't learned how to sit with our wisdom and we haven't learned how to be present to it. And, and that a little bit is what ACT teaches us, but also a lot of the kind of different yogic philosophies as well. Um, so does everyone need a digital wellness coach, like a personal one, like a personal trainer? Maybe not. Do they need lessons in how to be um, digitally well and savvy and ask the right questions in general? Absolutely. Um, do we need education on this? Totally. Just like we need education on, you know, sex ed and how to eat well and how to be in relationships. Um, so, uh, yeah, we need education. Do we yeah, all need coaching? Eh. <laughs> that's a great point. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, my experience with CBT and how mm-hmm. helpful it was for me to have someone to talk to and, and work through those things. Sure. And I've always said, like, you know, that I think people that are that are are healthy mentally still should, you know, if they have the opportunity to work with a therapist, I think it's incredible. It's an incredibly Absolutely. powerful form of self-discovery. Yeah. And, you know, if I think of kind of digital health as, as another pillar of our health, right, mental, physical, mm. emotional, spiritual, digital, mm. um, what is that almost like digital health dojo or gym? Yeah. What is the yeah. gold gym of, of digital health? Like, does it exist yet? Will we have one? where you well, can go and train those muscles, yeah. you know, maybe not with a personal trainer because yeah. we can't obviously all afford that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think it's a spectrum too because not all of us will be as vulnerable to some of the things that get into our um, space around digital. Like a lot of people just, it's not an issue for them because they have a different set of skills and ways of viewing the world that it doesn't kind of come up for them. I know that when I get stressed, I distract myself with that, with, with that space. I know there's particular times where I will go stalking certain people, not stalking in a creepy way, just look up people and wonder what they're doing with their lives when I've probably got better things to do. So that's kind of just working with like your human nature, which is to, want to move away from the painful things or kind of ask silly questions that don't really matter rather than asking asking yourself more about what matters and where you want to be in the future rather than looking back in the past, I guess. So um, I, I definitely think more conversations and more collaboration and more um, being connected to, to these kinds of ideas is really, really valuable. But even, even the idea of having a coach to some degree pathologizes where you're at or mean yeah it takes away some of the kind of efficacy that you might have in solving your own problems from the get-go and Um, and yet you know I I hear you and yet you're you know you're a tutor you're you're a psychologist you know you work one-on-one with so many people and I just I find that that is such an important you know gift that that one-on-one work and we're so especially in the age of blitz scaling and tech mm. even from an impact standpoint I feel yeah. like I've often gotten myself caught up in the I want to make an impact and yet the year that I spent or year or two that I spent as an SAT tutor mm. and as a yoga instructor I might have made more of an impact you know than any other work that I've done so yeah. 
I don't know. I, I, I just like kind of honor you for that, oh, for that you. work that you're doing. And, it's and such I, a, I, I would love to see more of that. You know, I think yeah, we well, do need I, that, that mentor, that coach, that guide, that tutor, that, you know, like the glass bead game by Herman Hess, you know, Joseph mm-hmm. Necht, like the, the quintessential one-on-one, you know, the guru student relationship, yeah. right? Like I just, I feel like of, that could heal us. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> space for guru, right? I, I definitely think that there is space for that, but also honouring um, what what I find, I guess, working with parents is uh, and with kids is the incredible wisdom of a community and of a group that maybe doesn't get the voice to be shared. So one of the projects that I'm trying to work on are the many things, you know, I have all of these distractions and they're all very virtuous, but here's one of them that is... Um, <laughs> To create parenting salons. So rather than parenting events being this thing where you go and you sit and you get lectured by some expert who you then think, oh, my God, I'm doing it all wrong and shame and guilt comes up, that we actually create spaces and salons for mums and dads to go and have a nice glass of wine or whatever, whatever you might float your boat, um, and have conversations where, first and foremost, you're honoured for the knowledge and the things that you are doing and that is working. And then we strike up conversations that build upon that and tap the collective kind of wisdom. Um, Cause I think that would be much more um, inspiring. And that's the kind of thing as me as a parent um, that I want to go to, you know? Um, so I'm trying to work on things like that. So without scaling things where there's like a digital nutrition I don't know, webinar or course or principles or whatever that everyone can kind of come to. It really is the philosophy and the theory of, um, you know, what makes you a good human and how do we stay, well, I guess my tagline is how do we stay human in a digital age? What does that even mean? Um, What do you want to have in your life? Um, And to me that's about really authentically connected. That's about being empathetic. That's about being conscious and being able to feel like you're making choices that are really well-informed. So increasingly my work isn't so much about the digital, it's actually about the humans who are interfacing with the digital. And if you could look up, great name for a podcast. Mm, um, thank you. <laughs> it would just, that would, that's what makes a difference and that's where those connections happen. So, yeah. you know, it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it's about, you know, changing the view and being more savvy about where you choose for that to fit in your life. Um, so it's like decolonizing tech back out of your life. We kind of colonized us and now we're like, no, no, you must go. And this is how you want to fit. So, or I want you to fit in my life. I love it. I love it. What I'm hearing is we need to evolve. You know, our tech is evolving rapidly and it's time for us to kind of maybe biologically we won't, but, but consciously I think there's an evolution happening as a reaction to um, this kind of like rapid proliferation of tech yeah. and some of the, the unintended consequences of it. So yeah. Jocelyn, thank you for coming on the show. This is, this was awesome. I'd love to have you come back again. <laughs> if I'm ever down in Australia, I'll let you know. Please drop in. If you're yeah. In LA Let's or the States. Yeah. That would be great. And of course nice. we're here talking on Skype. I, yeah. See? You know, one of the benefits of course. Exactly. So, exactly. Thank you. Maybe with the bathwater. No, not at all. Cool. Well, 
how can people find you? What's um, what's the best way for them to get in touch? I'll leave these links in, in the show notes as well. Sure. So digitalnutrition.com.au um, is me, but also if you can remember jocelynbrewer.com, that's, that's also where you find me. And look, I've written for lots of different places. So you'll find my writing on Quartz, HuffPost, um, Junkie, which is a really great um, little uh, new media newsletter in Australia, all over the place. The Family Online Safety Institute just published some of my work. Um, wow. Look look up those words, a combination of those words, and you will find me in lots of places scattered all over the internet. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Jocelyn, and have a great night. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. Uh, You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up Podcast. (laughs) 